This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. If I have a website and I have Google Analytics on it, I've approved Google's use of my website to collect data. But somebody coming to use my website doesn't know that Google's collecting data on my site. So is there implied consent or is that illegal, your point of view? Uh, it is one of the flaws of consent, probably, that uh, there is a term and condition uh, somewhere that uh, makes this uh, consent. And that's why I say that uh, privacy uh, is not only about uh, rules on consent, it's about uh, the use of the information and the respect uh, for rights. So we, we should not be fixated on consent as the be-all and end-all of privacy and data protection. Without mandated net neutrality, there is nothing to stop a company from paying your ISP to increase access to their own services or decrease access to their competitors' services. And to my point last time I spoke on this about overselling internet connections, I don't have much sympathy for ISPs in that situation. And so the argument that net neutrality has to go because of capacity issues is spurious. In my view, ISPs should be required to market minimum, not maximum, sustained speed capability to their first peer outside of the network at typical peak usage times. ExploreNet, for example, markets 25 megabit satellite service, but won't tell you that for most customers, that only applies at 3 a.m. on a clear night with no northern lights, and even then only during the full moon. I may be exaggerating, but only a bit. It isn't that the satellites and ground stations can't handle an individual connection at that speed most of the time, it is that the connections are oversold resulting in constant, bitter complaining in my writing from rural internet users who are stuck between the ExploreNet rock and the dial-up hard place. A number of years ago, the MPA and the RIAA, um, Recording Industry Association, went after individuals who were using uh, P2P sites, suing the pants off these poor families. How did that go, and what happened, and does that still happen? Yeah, I'm not sure where you're getting that information, but that's not a position of our companies, and that's not the David Graham was not your typical member of Parliament. A Liberal MP from the Quebec riding of Laurentide Labelle, Graham brought a background in open source issues to Parliament Hill. Over his four years as an MP from 2015 until this year, Graham was seemingly everywhere when it came to digital policy. Whether in the House of Commons talking about net neutrality, the Industry Committee on Copyright, or the Ethics Committee work on privacy, Graham emerged as the rare MP equally at home in the technology and policy worlds. Graham's bid for re-election fell short last month, as momentum for the block was too much to overcome. This week, he joins me on the podcast to reflect on his experience in Ottawa, with his thoughts on copyright, privacy, tech policy, and the use of digital tools for advocacy purposes. David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's great. So, you know, you were an MP, I think, with a bit of a different background. You'd served as a parliamentary assistant, so you knew the environment of, of Parliament Hill. But before coming to Ottawa, you were involved in open source issues. Before we get into the experience in your years as an MP, maybe if you could describe a little bit the path that ultimately resulted in you becoming a member of parliament. I had, I've always had an interest in politics. I've always participated as a volunteer on campaigns from my teens. That's what I love doing. And uh, in 2008, in the second tech bubble burst, I was suddenly you know, no longer in the employee of 
uh, the open source journalism world, as were all of my colleagues, we were all let go together. Um, so I said, what do I actually want to do with my life? And so I called up my MP at the time who had helped in the campaign um, as his data chair because I was already doing data work. And, and I said, can I work for you? And he said, no, I've already filled my staff. So I said, okay, that's not going to work so well. A few months later, uh, I got a call from him asking for some contract work. And shortly after, I was hired part-time. It's like, this is great. But it was doing technology work. It was doing their websites. It was doing database stuff. I said, okay, that's fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a door in. And after a year of that, I said, I want to move to Ottawa. And I asked the MP if I could move to Ottawa and work for him there. And he said no, so I quit and I went anyway. And so in Ottawa, showing up with a technological and, and political background, you can rise the ranks a lot faster than the um, myriad communications experts who show up here. So I um, came to the party office, and I wanted to volunteer my way to work. And they put me, at, after about an hour, at a computer and started giving me tasks that were taking people a long time to do. And I was getting them done and saying, OK, what's the next task? And so I got a reputation as understanding databases. I started playing with the administrative side of, of, of the party database and um, demonstrated a knowledge of data. I got sent off to by-elections to run data. I worked on both McGinty campaigns, federal and provincial, on data. Um, I just did data. And so that was a, a way of rising the ranks very quickly. And then in the end of 2012, I joined Justin Trudeau's leadership team just in the national capital area, but I wanted to do data. And in the winter, I got brought in on, on, the, on the database team. And then after that, when I helped Justin win, it's like, okay, I come from rural Quebec. It's my home. It's where I grew up. It's where I'd love to go back to. It's where I go whenever I have time to. Um, could I, if I don't run at home, who's going to do it? Uh, I better do it. So it's sort of a feeling of, of almost obligation. So I started figuring out the system. I had enough campaign experience to know how to run a campaign. So I ran my own campaign and started figuring out the data needed to figure out who were my supporters in a vast area of 20,000 kilometers and go and find them and get their memberships, which were still paid at that time. Go knock on the door. Um, I had, I, I realized at what level my riding is a poor area when I'd have couples choose between them which one is going to buy the membership because $20 is too much for that wow. to afford. And that happened to me quite a number of times. But by using data and by using the technological expertise I had, I was able to win a nomination I should not have been able to win against you know, the good old boys club and and you know what i mean by that but mm -hmm. it was it was a challenge and but it was the technology that got me there and so i won the nomination in, in 2014 uh won the election in 2015 a week earlier i would have lost to the ndp a week later to the block you know it's, it was a very very interesting election um but it was the technology background that got me to all the way along there and then once i got to the hill it was again the technology influenced everything i do so it's interesting to see the role that it played coming in into all of this. I, 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 went, I often joke that politics is just another system to hack. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you managed to hack it and, uh, well, and kind of. get involved. And I hacked it as a politician, too. So. That's true enough. And I want to talk a bit about that. You know, your, your Wikipedia bio notes that you were the first MP to reference Linux and the Electronic Frontier Foundation on the floor of the House of Commons. Once you arrived as an MP, how did you find the state of technology policy familiarity amongst your fellow members of parliament? Uh, poor. It's, um, technology is not something that's understood, and it's almost like there's a pride in not understanding it that drives me absolutely mad. Um, I, I, you probably saw it back in early in the mandate, and I was at Government Operations and Estimates, and we had Shared Services Canada, and I had some volunteers in my office preparing this long list of questions, and I looked at Shared Services and looked at my volunteers and said, I'm not going to use these questions. I'm going to see what they understand about technology that they're responsible for. And I started asking very specific technological questions that should have been fairly straightforward to answer and, and kind of were, kind of weren't. And that made Slashdot and <laughs> other websites saying, oh, look, there's an MP who knows what a 32-bit what a 
be integers. No, like that's that doesn't happen. Um, but at the end of my questions, the chair made some comment about not understanding technology and still not knowing how a fax machine works. And this is a big joke. And the next MP to ask a question was like, yeah, well, I guess you're calling me a dinosaur. But the frustration of all that is that there's a feeling that not understanding or knowing or wanting to understand about technology is something to be proud of. And that worries me greatly. We are in a, in a ultra-technological world where our dishwashers are programmed, for Pete's sake. <laughs> that we have to take it seriously. It, it impacts every aspect of our lives. And it, if people in public policy don't understand it, we're in real, real trouble because it means the only understanding they have is what key lobbyists tell them to understand. And that's not a healthy position. They have to have the knowledge and the education and the experience to go, that's not exactly the true what you're telling me. That's, that's not really how this works. And that's not in the public interest only in your interest. And people have to be able to say that. Mm. And I don't feel that people are or can say that in, in great numbers. Yeah, was given that, that you were someone that had that ex mm. expertise and experience and was recognized as such, did you find that there's a, a willingness not in, perhaps to defer to you or at least to, to recognize that expertise that you'd bring to the table? Um, not immediately, it took time. Um, I've, I've always sort of been pigeonholed as you know, the nerd, but doesn't people don't really know what it means. There's a number of times I've walked into the House of Commons and somebody will say, David, you're there, great, here's my phone, please fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, every, every person in technology is a nightmare is to be the IT guy that has to fix everybody's printer, right? It's, it's not what we want to be doing. It's, that's not the technology that's interesting, interesting to us. And I hate printers too, by the way. When I, for the first year and a half I was working, I served as the acting deputy house leader as Arnold Chan was sick with cancer and he'd asked me to replace him during his illness. And so I was running debate in the house. That's what my job for the first year and a half. And when he passed away in, in the fall of 2017, I was back to square one in terms of what my engagement was in the House of Commons because I wasn't on that team anymore. And I was like, okay, what, where's the real influence that I can have in this place? I tried creating a digital caucus. It became a speaker's club, which is very interesting, but it wasn't productive. We weren't producing reports. We weren't producing policy ideas. And so I sort of let that drop. I handed it over to another MP who was running an innovation caucus, and I left it with him. Um, and it continued as a speaking organization, which was interesting, but not initially what I wanted to be doing. So, okay, well, I wanted to look at what the committees are up to. I'm only been on procedure in House Affairs for the most part up to that point, which is another fun one. Um, but then I, I started looking at ethics and transport and... Um, in India, going like, all these fascinating studies going on, I wasn't even aware of. So I started paying attention to committees, and thinking, okay, I'm an MP, I have the right to go to any committee anytime I want. So why don't I just start doing that? And I would start showing up at committees. Now there's an extra chair being pulled up because David's there again. To the point that all the clerks would sort of keep my name tag ready just in case I showed up, and sort of forced my way onto committees to get involved in the. The first one was the high-speed internet study um, at Indu. Uh, I was involved in the railway. The, what's it called? The, the Transportation Modernization Act study at Transport Committee. Like, everything that interested me, I just went because why not? I'm here, that's my job. It's If I have an expertise in a policy, I should be there trying to move that forward. And what kind of response did you get from your fellow MPs when suddenly you start showing up to all these committees and I assume looking for an opportunity to ask questions along the way? Um, for the most part, great. Somebody who n has good questions to ask instead of sort of searching and struggling. And a, a lot of MPs don't know what to ask. Um, and so there, there's a lot of questions that are almost pro forma. You know, there's, we have to ask questions. So here's a question that you know, a researcher has provided me as, and the library provides really good questions to ask, but often they don't even refer to those. They're just like, well, you said this keyword, and I'll ask you a question to make me sound smart, instead of saying, what policy direction do we need to be going down with this, with this witness? What, what do we need to learn? Um, where we first connected was on the, when I asked the Movie Producing Association of Canada, are you the MPAA, right? Is it simple question? I want to know the answer. It wasn't because somebody 
fighting the questions because what they were saying sounded familiar, and I wanted to know, is it true? <laughs> and sure enough, right? So it's the mind of a journalist as it was before in technology, going, that doesn't make sense, let, let's get clarity. And so the openness of other MPs to let me take the spots, is I've had very little trouble. And every once in a while you have somebody who feels like you're taking their place. Fine, ask your question. I'll take the second round or the fourth round. I don't care. Here, and, if, and if you don't want to give me time, here's some questions that you might want to ask. Go for it. And I've done that many times too. Here's some ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, the reception's been very positive overall because I, I try and bring something to the table. And so I think that's taken well by the clerks, by the analysts, by the other MPs on all parties. Like I've never been partisan about it. It's, these are the issues I want to discuss. Right. I mean, so one of the challenges that I assume an MP faces when they come to the Hill is how do you get involved in policy development? And it sounds like uh, your way to hack the system, so to speak, if you're not a cabinet minister or a parliamentary secretary, yeah. was just to begin showing up, especially right. at the various committees. That's right. And towards the end of the mandate, and I wish I had a few more years to do this, because in, in the last year, in the last 12 months, I added Indu to my portfolio because we were doing the copyright study there, and I said, this is really interesting, and I'd gone to talk to them at one of their pre-committee meetings where they're discussing where they want to go and how they want to approach the, the file. I said, here's a dozen points that I think you guys should discuss. I'm not in their committee. It's just food for thought. Here it is. <laughs> and so I started showing up to the committees. Um, I look for who needs replacement on that committee, and I just take their spot, right? So, Or I just show up without a replacement, and then I can't. I, the only thing I lose is the right to vote. Um, until I went to the whip and said, well, I'd like to be on this committee properly. And they're like, fine. No, we, people have to be on more than two committees right now because we're just, we have so many committees and so many people that have to be on them. And I said, okay, that's great. If I can do two, I can do more. Like my, there's four slots on my calendar. Um, and it's interesting work. So why would I w- not want to do it? So then I saw that public safety is working on a cybersecurity study. And it was already half over by the time I noticed it, which is frustrating because if had I known, I'd have been there from the beginning. So I dove into that one. And then the Ethics Grand Committee came up. And I started poking my nose around saying, can I show up? Because this is different from the normal committees. If I just come, is that OK? And the clerk said, it's, look, as far as the rules are, it's just another committee. So without taking other people's spots, or without having any um, mandate to be there, I just started showing up to that as well. And I was asking good questions. So I get having the right to ask more questions, even though in principle, you know, we had a lot of people to share time with. Mm. So it was just by forcing myself into the place. And then I wanted one more committee. I wanted to be on, on ethics permanently. And when I approached the whip for that one, they said, well, there's no space available on ethics. However, natural resources has a spot. So here's your fourth committee. I'm like, great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, careful you wish for, that, I guess, right. sometimes. So again, right? And natural resources is interesting. We're doing a study on indigenous relations in, in, in uh, resource development. And it's not something I'd really thought about before. So that was an interesting study, but it wasn't what I was looking for. But again, I learned something there because that's what committees are. Mm-hmm. People see them as obligation. I see them as an opportunity. Committees are the power MPs have and more should exercise it. Yeah, I want to come back to some of the specific studies because sure. you provide some really interesting insight. But before we do that, I mean, it sounds like for someone interested in these issues, a really fascinating mm. way to spend time in Ottawa and to try to have an impact. But you mentioned your riding mm. being a uh, very large riding, poor riding. Right. How do those these kinds of digital issues translate back home, does it resonate or is there a disconnect at times between the work you're doing in Ottawa with the work that people back in your local constituency are focused on? Unless it makes the television news, nobody in the writing knows or cares what I do in Ottawa. And, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have a, a very profound impact on what I do in Ottawa, uh, on what I do in the writing. So the biggest single issue in my writing, it's a large writing, it's a poor writing, it's a mountainous writing, it's telecommunications. A, a significant percentage of the writing, more than half, have no proper internet. Um, a lot of communities have no cell phone service. We are in another era 
in, on telecommunication. So I was able to use my knowledge and technology to move that forward. So shortly after my election, the mayor of a small town of about 500 people in the north uh, struck a, ca a county level committee to create an internet system for the northern county. I have three counties in the riding. And, I, and instead of saying, David, we want your, you to write a check when the time comes, which is what most people say in politics, it's can you come sit on this committee? We know you have a technology background. I said, sure, absolutely. And so they made the schedule around my availability and that of the MNA, the provincial MP, who had been involved in the file a long time, but had a political, not a technological background. But together with those 17 mayors and the, the MP and the MNA, we were able to come up with a plan and a project that worked on time for Connect Innovate to come out. And we ended up with the single best project in Quebec, the biggest project, and the only one that stayed completely in the public sector, which is fascinating to me, but based on technological knowledge. Because when, when companies and providers would come and say, here's what I'm offering, I can call them out. That's not true, or that's, you're not going to carry through. Um, that's not how the technology works. This is a cheap way of doing it. This can work. Um, don't use a lingo because I get the lingo. Mm -hmm. I know the lingo. I speak it. So that knowledge is very, very helpful for that. Yeah. And it's interesting. Now, thinking back to some of these committees, you mentioned the International Grand Committee and the work on the I Ethics Committee. Yeah. So privacy, of course, captured a lot of attention yeah. uh, during the last mandate, and it seems likely to yet again. Um, you have some thoughts on, on where we are right now in the state of Canadian privacy law. And and you mentioned that committees are, are a place where you can have had you can have some impact. The Ethic Committee had some, I think, really detailed, significant reports around Canadian privacy. So so where do you think we are and, and you have thoughts on where we might be going with respect to these issues? Um, privacy is a as a much tougher one than people give it credit for, I think, because the great majority of people click I agree. Whatever the agreement is, uh, we we can complain up and down about Facebook and Google and all these companies and their well-named surveillance capitalism approach to the economy. But they're telling us that in the in the engaged license agreements, just nobody's reading it. Nobody's understanding what it means. Um, so it, the issue we have to solve is explaining to people what's really going on and requiring that be the case. And I don't know if that we're tackling that in a really productive way. We're saying no, we have to have the privacy laws that we government shouldn't have our data. But you know, Facebook and Google have every piece of data they want, but the government, they're big and evil. They can't have our data. I don't know how to fix that. Right? It's a perception issue more than anything else. Government has less data on people than most companies do. Yeah, government's the big bad wolf when it comes to data. Why? They're providing a service to you, and they're the other ones are selling something to you. How do we fix that policy? I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. But we have to think about it in terms of education not just in reading agreements and making simple agreements, but in explaining that when a corporation has your data, they, there's a reason for it. When the government has your data, there's a reason for it. And what are the different reasons? One is to provide you a service. One is to make, get your money. And, and so I think we have to go down that road to explain that and understand it. But I don't know how to do that. Mm. The inter One of the things that, that was striking about the Ethic Committee, and you mentioned holding the International Grand Committee. I did a podcast with Nate Erskine-Smith yeah. uh, soon after the Ottawa meeting, and most recently there was a, a follow-up meeting in Dublin. Right. Um, what was it like bringing together parliamentarians from around the world, clearly focused on similar kinds of issues, bringing them together in, in a pretty unusual setting from a hearing perspective? I'd say those three days were probably my favorite three days in my four years in office. And it was some of the most interesting witnesses I've ever had. It's the most interesting other parliamentarians. These are leaders in this field in in twenty odd countries who have come there around a table to ask um, smart people hard questions. And if I could have done that for a month, boy, I'd have been a happy guy. Because we really got to get into the weeds on stuff, but not nearly as much as I'd have liked to. You know, I had my fun asking for an explanation of do you want to accept the definition of what U.S. surveillance capitalism? 
but I had five minutes to do it with the entirety of the industry, right? There's so much deeper to go on these issues. In fact, no, the experience, the quality of people that were there, the quality of the questions that were being asked on from in every country, um, and the importance of what we were doing cannot be overstated. It was, that was a, the committee is the real power of MPs, and that really proved it, that, that committee especially. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, closely related to the privacy issues, and it came up as part of the International Grand Committee, of course, as well, are some of the security-related issues. You also spent time on the Public Safety Committee. Um, what do you feel, or what's your thoughts on our preparedness when it comes to cybersecurity issues? And I guess it, it's linked both to what the government's doing, but as well, the attention or lack thereof that MPs may be playing, paying to uh, such a critical issue. Uh, it's, it's a really critical issue, and I think that we are often in a position to bring pea shooters to gunfights on cybersecurity. Uh, there's, there's a real lack of understanding of the risks. Like, we all carry smartphones on us. Um, in my role as an MP, what are the chances that none of the smartphones are ever hacked? Just about zero, right? It, the reality is those are highly targeted devices. They're relatively easy to hack in spite of what people think. And we don't have a security by design mentality in everything we do, and we need to. Everything we do has to be security first. Um, and you can design the best system in the world. If the hardware is hacked at source, there's nothing you can do to get around that. Um, where Where's all of our hardware manufactured right now? It isn't in Toronto, right? So what systems do we have to protect it? We already know the NSA and the CIA, for example, one of their favorite strategies is to intercept hardware en route to its customer and modify it at the hardware level on its way there. So any protection you do is still compromised. And if the West's doing that, Five Eyes are doing that, for sure others are doing it as well. So I, I think there's a lot of naivete on cybersecurity. There's a, a profound lack of understanding. You're familiar with Stuxnet and, and how that was installed by just simply putting USB sticks in stores until they right, people bought the right ones, right? Cyber hygiene is a wonderful term. It's so widely understood across government, across politics. I cannot overstate how important that is. Mm. We're, we're recording this on a day when the, the Globe earlier today was reporting on a divide within government about what to do with Huawei and our networks. Uh, you know, so that, that's an issue, not surprisingly, that our securities intelligence agencies will take a look at. Is it an issue that attracts attention from members of parliament or in an environment where many struggle with even just their own basic personal security, it's tough to get their heads around some of these the bigger network uh, almost political type issues. I think so. It's it's easy f to go after Huawei because oh, they're a big bad Chinese company that must, by Chinese law, help the company, the country with its national interest. Therefore, spy. That's the assumption. The failure in the assumption is that only China does that. The West does that too. So where's what's special about Huawei? When a backdoor is open, it's open. We have to going after the whole premise of backdoors and having a much stronger system. And if when you're writing software for an aircraft for example, 737 MAX notwithstanding. Um, the testing involved and the, and the quality control involved, you don't have room for error. But we don't apply those standards to anything else we do, and we need to. Everything has to be tested and evaluated from one end to the other. Um, I'm a firm believer that open source is the way to go, having the code readable to the public. Um, security by obscurity is a, is a wonderful standard. It doesn't work. It's like trickle-down economics. It is, it's, it's a myth. Um, so we need systems where everyone can stick their fingers into it, and that by everyone, I mean everyone, and we're not doing that. As a government, we still have this approach that um, you always need a throat to choke, right? You always have to have a contract with somebody to provide you something, and how they get there, it's up to them. Just give us software that works. 
not a very good approach. Become part of the ecosystem. We'll have much better security for much lower, much lower cost across our entire network. Um, the hardware has to be open, hardware designs. The software has to be open, software designs. We have to get to that point. For the purposes of this podcast, one of the issues we've spent a lot of time focusing on is copyright. Right. And uh, you played a pretty big role on the copyright review. Why don't we start with some of your thoughts on what was a, a pretty lengthy process. I recognize it, that you came in after it had begun, but it, right. it went on for a very long period of time. And the final report that, that Indu released uh, just before the, the, the house, the election in the house yeah. rose. I, okay, the copyright report was really important to me. I, as a journalist in open source, like I made my living on copyright before I came here, as any writer would. Um, but we, our website Linux.com at the time used um, fair use as the basis of everything we did because we take the the opening paragraph of an article and say, here, you want to read the rest of the article? Click here. But here's the aggregation. Before Google News was a thing, we were doing that with hand editing. So. I've been around copyright my whole life. I, I joined Access Copyright as a, as a contributor years ago because, hey, there's a way of making money as a copyright producer, right? I didn't know more than that about it at the time. Um, so I really wanted to be involved in the case. And I had worked for Jeff Regan during the last copyright review in, t in 2011 under C11, C32. Or C30, yeah, I think 32. Yep. Um, and I remember how deeply offended I was by the whole idea that TPMs could circumvent copyright. Yeah, the technological protection yeah. measures, yeah. digital locks. Yeah, or the Americans call it CRMs, con Content Rights Management. There is no logic to me in having a, technolog a technological implementation allow you to circumvent another law. So just the fact that you can afford better software shouldn't exempt you from copyright exemptions. And so my primary goal was breaking that. That's what I wanted to kill. When I went to join the copyright study, for me, TPM exemptions, you can have TPMs if you want. They shouldn't give you an exemption. If the TPMs are effective, you don't need the exemption. <laughs> so, um, so they had to go, in my mind. That was number one. Which would lead to things like right to repair, which is, you know, the the, the famous John Deere suit was such an affront to my rights as a, as a human being that it had to be addressed. So yeah, this speaking specifically to the ability for farmers to, to repair their own equipment right. from John Deere. That's right. And so when when a company that pr creates a hardware platform or a truck and a tractor in this case says you can't fix it because we have copyright on the software in the machine, something has become very very broken. Um, the fact that copyright is 50 years in Canada and seven years in other places, to me, is offensive. Like, it doesn't make sense to have copyright, by definition, survive longer than the, use, than the usefulness of the material, <laughs> right? Uh, patents are only 20 years. Why would copyright be 50 or 70? <coughs> so I wanted to make sure that we didn't go to 70 years. Well, it's life plus 50 L or 70, so we're talking far, far longer. Well, uh, that's right. And, but being able to do the deep dive into the broader issues was really interesting. We came up, I forget how many recommendations, but a lot of them. And... A lot of those recommendations took hours of debate in camera just to come to that recommendation. Like, because you know, the analyst would come to you with, here's the material that received, here are the alternatives. A recommendation that goes this way, a recommendation that goes the opposite direction. You guys have to decide as a committee where you want to go with that. Mm -hmm. And if we'd had these profound debates on where we wanted to go as a committee, and we didn't do it on party lines, it didn't happen. It was, how do we work together to come up with the best possible policy? And of course, the people that disagree with different things, but it was a really worthwhile experience to come out with a really solid report. Um, was it perfect? Probably not. But it was a damn good report, I think. I'm proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, no, I, 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 I'm inclined to agree. As anyone knows stuff that I, I've written on, I, feel, I thought both that this was, as this was clearly, I think, the most comprehensive review of copyright in Canada that we had in many years, and I thought the report was the same. One of the things that was striking about the report was the effort to cite 
all witnesses mm. and cite virtually every brief mm. as well. Mm. Uh, and for a year-long study, that means you got a lot of people. You know, I'm assuming that was not by accident. It's not by accident, but it was also not by the design of the MP so much as by just terrific analysts. Like the analysts that were assigned to that study were some of the best in business in the, in the Library of Parliament. And these are people that li live and breathe copyright. And, and you can see, you know, the, one of them needed a haircut for quite a long time because he's so focused on this job. And they're terrific at it. And if you brought up an issue with them, uh, you know, there's a, a word on page 200 of the report that we're questioning. And we'd have a 30-minute discussion about the background of that word and how we got there and, and what witness said what and how we... And to have that level of expertise at a committee is terrific. And that's why my digital caucus didn't work, because we didn't have those analysts. Just a bunch of MPs and staff sitting around a table going, this is a great idea. What do you want to do about it? Mm -hmm. We need those analysts. We need those people who can turn vast amounts of data into, into something usable. Yeah. The committee hearings, which included travel early on and yeah. three phases, you know, heard clearly from a wide range of, of witnesses. What stands out? to you with uh, the kind of witnesses that, that came forward? Where, where, and I guess even more directly, you know, without naming necessarily specific witnesses, what made for you an effective witness in raising some of these issues? Honesty. Like when, I, when witnesses come and they have a bent that is to protect their organization instead of the public, that always worries me. There isn't enough um, public interest advocacy. There's not enough people who are there specifically to protect the public's interest. There is no consumer organization that is legitimately a consumer organization that I can see in copyright that their only job is to protect the rights of the public. And so it's always everyone trying to pull the covers to their side of the bed instead of what's the best way to keep the bed warm. You know, it's, it's like, so, so witnesses that come, like, you as a witness are, you're a very experienced witness, you're very good, you come and say, here's the stat facts of the matter, here's, and you have your opinions, we all do. And so the, the lawyers and the, and the experts coming was very useful. The people coming who are lobbying for their specific organizations, which I don't need to name them, they're, they're frustrating because they, they come and say, no, you have to do this for the good of the country. Actually, it's good for about 12 people, but they're the ones that pay us. So mm -hmm. you have to do this for the good of the country. And that drove me up the wall because it wasn't, yeah, they had to say it, that's their job to say it. But if people were buying that and saying, we're going to make our policy based only on that, you're not doing public policy. That's not what you're doing anymore. You're accepting lobbyists as as facts. Mm -hmm. And that's very dangerous. Yeah. That lobbying effort clearly took place from, from groups from across the spectrum. People does, yeah. uh, emailing their MPs or obviously seeking, seeking yeah. meetings and the like. Did you find any of that particularly effective? Uh, for you and then even more broadly, you mm -hmm. talked about the debates that took place in camera. Did you, did you have the sense that that was having an impact or for most MPs, yourself, I guess, included the it was the briefs. It was the the appearances and the Q&A that was taking place. It wasn't the kind of noise that surrounds. No, it wasn't the noise. It was, um, if I was getting a lot of emails, I wasn't really aware of it. And it was really we're doing a deep dive in policy and um, we're elected to do that. That's our job. That's what we're there for. Um, the great majority of people don't follow it and would have a great deal of difficulty with the kind of work we're doing. Email campaigns as an MP, as a staffer before, that never impressed me. And if, if you get your <coughs> excuse me, your network to send 200 emails to the MP and they all say the same thing, we only got one email, right? I didn't get 200 emails, I got one email. So there, and when you write back to them, oftentimes people are surprised that you even got the email because they thought they were filling a, a thing on a website, right? So you, you don't tend to take them very seriously. 
it's not a very good way of, of, of affecting your MP. It just it isn't. If you want to have an impact, write a letter yourself to your MP in your writing with your well-thought-out reasoning. One off, not 100 times, because as soon as it's 100 times, it's a form letter. And if you send me a form letter, I'll send you a form letter. <laughs> right? Send me your thoughts and explain why. And that will convince me a hell of a lot faster mm -hmm. than, a, than an email campaign or a Twitter campaign, which to me are utterly meaningless. Yeah, so you'd, you'd, cal you'd put the tweet campaigns where people are tweeting at they're members of a committee in the same basket annoying. as the emails. Yeah, they're simply annoying. They don't, they don't offer anything. They don't contribute anything to the debate. Um, and there are having email campaigns that are, and Twitter campaigns, as you mentioned, on cigarette labeling and this kind of thing. Like, I don't, it, it, you're not going to impact me by sending me 200 tweets. And if it's the same person tweeting at me over and over again, saying the same thing over and over again, it's one person sending me one message one time. Right. And so those and those letters, because it's certainly one of the questions that I, that I wanted to, to get to was for those that are interested in ensuring their voice is heard and mm -hmm. having some influence in policy. What's the most effective way of doing it? And it sounds like you're saying the direct letters to your elected representative. That's right. a, a well thought out, well crafted, properly written email. It's just like a CV and a job application. If it's full of mistakes, no one's going to see it. Right. It's a, a, a properly thought out email um, with your thoughts and why explain them. This is the background. This is why this is important. Not as so many emails coming to MPs are, you're an idiot, but here's the reasons that I think you, you have made a mistake on this policy issue or why I think you need to be going in this direction. I will read that. I'll respond to it, and I'll respond in kind. If you send me a, a detailed letter and you're from my writing, I'll write back to you. If you're from Vancouver and you're writing to me, I probably won't get around to reading that letter because I have enough to work to do my own writing. Right? Mm -hmm. So focus on your MP and write a, a detailed thing. And if it's a committee they're not sitting on, they'll take it to their colleagues who are on those committees. That's why we have representatives from all the parties, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like an environment that can be quite collegial amongst the, the MPs. But one of the things that was striking about the copyright review process is that the review was conducted by the industry committee. Mm -hmm. There was a role crafted out for the heritage committee mm -hmm. that was supposed to support your committee. Um, but it didn't seem to turn out that way. They issued their own report uh, ultimately leading to a press release from the Indu committee making it clear which was the copyright review and which was not. Um, can you provide so, any insight, really, at all into, into that process? Because in a collegial environment, that sounds like a process gone wrong. Um, well, it's a process that demonstrates to a great extent that who is on a committee impacts its work. Right? So you have to, you don't just take 10 random people, put them on a committee and expect good policy to come out of it. You have to have people who have expertise in an area. And Heritage did the job that they wanted to do, which was to figure out how to improve revenue for artists. And that was their end it and the, to themselves. And ours was a holistic view of copyright and how do we fix it. And so in our own sectors, we did it properly. I think Heritage, um, from our point of view, was an atrocious report. From their point of view, it was a good report because it helped, it, it gave guidance on how to make artists more money. That was their objective. So I don't fault them for that. They did what they wanted to do and what they, what they felt they had to do. But our job was to see everything, not just that one section of it yeah. and then i suppose looking ahead new government now i don't know the copyright is necessarily going to be the the top priority in a minority government situation but but how do you foresee the government moving forward on the copyright issue per se there's a whole range of issues we had an earlier podcast a few weeks back on crown copyright which was a big issue you've mentioned right of repair there's mm. lots of talk about fair use mm. and expanding some of the fair dealing issues as of course the education related concerns and then there is this heritage report, which at times conflicts with the, mm -hmm. with that broader view that that industry took. Mm -hmm. You have thoughts on, on on what the path forward 
may be, or is this the sort of issue that in the current environment um, may be put to the side for a bit? Um, to take a report and make it into an updated copyright law uh, will take two solid years of a department to do it properly. And we're in a minority. And so in two years, we're probably in an election again. And I'm very concerned that if they undertake the work, it won't get completed. It's it's a really difficult position to be in. It's it's really unfortunate. And the five-year review has this consequence that it pretty much always ends up at an election. And the government currently doesn't have any obligation to respond to past parliament's reports. So in order for anything to happen at all, the new industry committee, who lost its chair and lost me and lost other members, several members that aren't there anymore, has to look at that and say, okay, let's adopt the report and retable it in the first week with a mandatory government response to get the ball rolling again. Because right now the ball rolled, it hit a wall, and, and somebody has to pick it up and roll it again. So it's it's really up to the committee to make something happen. Mm -hmm. No one else and nothing else can, can move that other than the committee. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, that, that actually did happen back in the earlier liberal days. I think 2004, 2005, there was a report. The the government, there was an, we had, we're, that was the cycle. We had several minority governments. Mm -hmm. There was an election call. I believe the committee retabled the report effectively for exactly the, the reasons that you're suggesting was to try to get the government on the record on some of these issues. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Is there a digital issue as, as you look at it? I mean, all, all these kinds of issues that you were focused on uh, really continue to accelerate and ma made their way into a number of party platforms mm -hmm. as well. If you if you were to take a look at where you think things are going to go in the next 12 to 18 months, let's say, in a, in, in a, in a minority government situation, what might be the digital issues that you think are most likely to capture someone's attention? Well, um, privacy and security are the two big ones, and they're going to continue to be the two big ones. I don't see that changing. Um, I'm just hoping that the minority parliament isn't so distracted they don't um, study them, right? Because there'll be a lot more studies for political gain and a lot less for public policy gain over the next couple of years, I suspect. Just because, you know, it's opposition-controlled agendas at committee now, and, and how do you stick it to the man instead of how do we move progress forward? And majorities are essential to keep minorities honest. Minorities are essential to keep majorities honest. You need both in the system. But now we're in the minority side of the cycle. And getting anything to happen in the next couple of years is going to be really, really challenging. And I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not there to, to help it make mm. it go forward. Yeah, no, it's unfortunate you're not there. But uh, why don't we conclude by asking what, where will you be? Or have you, have you given thought <laughs> to what comes next? I realize that you get so engaged in, in an election campaign. And there's a suddenness, of course, to the results come. And suddenly the, your world has changed. Have you given much thought at this stage to what comes next? I've given a tremendous amount of thought, and um, I'm not really sure. My job right now is kick open doors and see which one to walk through, ultimately. I have the technology background. I have the political background. I have an aviation background that we haven't discussed. Like I've done a lot of stuff in my life, um, but I really don't know what I'm going to do next. And so um, anybody listening, I'm, I'm available. So there's, there's <laughs> one of the problems with our system is that MPs have to spend a lot of time thinking about what the next step is. And I'm really concerned that in the long term that influences policy decisions. Like, let's say I had taken that attitude for the last four years. My copyright review might have been, hey, which stakeholder should I help to have a better job afterwards? And I didn't take that approach, but the system lends to that. And so that we have a lot of stuff to fix beyond technology. We have the whole structure has to be fixed so that our, our democracy is protected from itself. I mean, that's interesting. It's an interesting observation about mm. what motivations MPs might have. Although I think, as you pointed out with the work on the committees, we clearly had many MPs focused on the, the best policy. We had really good MPs on, on the committees I served, and I'm, I, I'm really proud to have served with them. Okay. 
Well, David, thank you both for taking the time to reflect a bit on your experience as an MP, as well as for the work that you've done over the last four years. As, as you know, there have not been many MPs with the, the kind of interest and experience that you brought to the table. And I think for a lot of people, it was really refreshing to have someone who was able to bring your kind of experience and your willingness to engage mm -hmm. to policies that are just so important. Well, thank you. I appreciate this. Great. Thanks so much. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.